Welcome to another episode of The Tactical Guitarist. I'm your host, Jesse McCann. This is episode 36, and I'm speaking with Dr. Don Green, a peak performance psychologist. Uh, we're going to be basically extending our, our look at uh, performance and performance anxiety and how to perform your best under pressure. Um, I've, I'm just uh, interested in this topic a lot, and I've, I'm reaching out to different uh, psychologists and getting their their feedback, their information, seeing what uh, what their approaches are. And uh, I had this really, really great uh, conversation with uh, Dr. Don Green. Uh, we talk about his uh, his book, Performance Success. He has a few books uh, that he's written. And uh, we go into a lot of different different topics uh, within the book and outside of the book. He has some really good uh, some some good stories to tell that uh, sort of reflect on how uh, how different techniques that he's uh, he's sort of harbored and, and cultivated um, really were effective, not just with the athletes that he worked with, but then all the musicians. Dr. Don Green is a peak performance psychologist and has taught his comprehensive approach to peak performance mastery at the Juilliard School, Colburn School, New World Symphony. Los Angeles Opera Young Artist Program, uh, the Vile Ski School, Perlman Music Program, and the U.S. Olympic Training Center. During his 32-year 32, uh, career, he has coached more than 1,000 performers to win professional auditions and has guided countless solo performers to successful careers. Some of the performing artists with whom Dr. Green has worked have won jobs with the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, New York Philharmonic, Chicago Symphony, San Francisco Opera, Montreal Symphony, Pittsburgh Symphony, the list just goes on and on. Of the Olympic track and field athletes he worked with up until and through the 2016 Games in Rio, um, they won 14 medals, uh, including five gold. Dr. Green has authored eight books, including Audition Success, Fight Your Fear and Win, and Performance Success. And in 2017, uh, he was named a TED educator and collaborated with musician Dr. Annie Bossler to produce the TED Ed How to Practice Effectively for Just About Anything. And that video uh, went viral. I've watched it many times. Uh, it went viral, receiving over 25 million views across Facebook and YouTube alone. And I'm going to post a link to that uh, in the show notes as well as on the website so you can uh, see what we're talking about. It's a really fantastic video. Like I said, we go into a lot of uh, a lot of topics that come from the book, and I think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation, especially if you deal with any kind of anxiety or nervousness or things like that, or just want to learn how to get better at uh, performing at your best on stage. So without further ado, I bring you Dr. Don Green. Uh, I am here with Dr. Don Green. Uh, Don Green, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. It's nice to be here. Um, I, I reached out to you after uh, picking up your book, Performance Success, Performing Your Best Under Pressure. You have uh, several books, I think, and actually several services, which I, I'd like to talk about. Um, but uh, this one caught my attention because um, a number of reasons. I teach guitar and uh, I run the guitar program at Portland State, but I also talk to different professionals about uh, performance and performing your best. And, and really how it applies to musicians in their careers uh, in music. Um, and so I was wondering if we could just, you know, talk a little bit about the, you know, some of the topics in the book and maybe expand on that and more about uh, the work you do, uh, including uh, some of the services I've, I've noticed on your website it seems to expand on, uh, on this book. Um, but first, I was wondering if you just give us a sense of your background um, 
you know, you, you, you've got a pretty, uh, what I think is a really interesting story. And uh, I'd like to hear just a little bit about how you got started with uh, where, where all this came from. Yes, thanks. Um, I grew up in New York on Long Island. And I, uh, I grew up as an athlete, not as a musician. Um, first on trampoline and diving, swimming and diving, and all through high school and college. And as a diver, I was, I was well-trained. I had a great coach, uh, and I could be either really good or embarrassingly bad. <laughs> I, was, I was erratic, and it was like flipping a coin whether I was going to hit a dive or miss a dive. And I was always curious about it, and I asked all my coaches, and they just said, well, focus or relax or something that didn't look good. Yeah. So I went to West Point. Uh, after I had five-year commitment in the Army. After the Army, I went back to graduate school. I went to graduate school to try to understand what happened to me, <laughs> Right. realizing I'm, I'm not the only one. And so I got my PhD in sports psychology, and my first job was with the Olympic diving team, not because I was a diver, it just happened to be, it was either going to be track and field or diving. And uh, I chose diving. And uh, that's what I did for four years. I was with the Olympic team. Wow. The Olympic team moved from Southern California to Florida. And I started working with golfers, uh, professional golfers, and started teaching at Golf Digest schools and worked with other athletes, um, race car drivers, tennis players uh, for a number of years. And I, I, I wound up moving to Vail, Colorado to work with the Vail Ski School and uh, work with skiers basically. Huh. But, but in the summer I did golf clinics and that's where I met a, a musician. He was uh, going through Vail, Colorado with the Rio Bravo concert series, uh, classical, classical musicians, but he was an avid golfer and uh, wanted my help with this golf game. Huh. And, and, and we went out and I watched him play and watched him practice. <clears throat> I gave him an assessment. I, I work a lot with assessments. Uh, they're questionnaires specifically designed for specific populations. So I gave him one of those for athletes and also watched him putt on the course and found out that he stood over putts a long time just thinking. And the more he thought, the worse it was. So I yeah. get this assessment. That's what the assessment showed, that he w was overthinking and losing his focus. So I, I taught him some strategies for focusing. And we went out the next day, and he shot four strokes better on nine holes, huh. which eight-stroke drop. And yeah. he was uh, very enthusiastic. And, and he said, you know, everything that we did applied to him as a musician. He was a, a double bass player with the Syracuse Symphony principal. And he said it all applies to what he did as a musician. And he was a much better musician than he was golfer. And he asked me if I'd be interested in working with musicians. And I, I've always loved music. And I said, sure, I'd love to. So he brought me back uh, to the Syracuse Symphony for a series of lectures. And the first day I got, you know, a few of the musicians mostly subs with the orchestra or backstand people. I told him I'm not sure if I had anything to offer. My friend thought I did, but I, I couldn't speak their language. They'd have to hear everything in sports terms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> About focus or distractions, whatever. 
And two days later, I got about half the orchestra came to my seminar. And the last day I was in Syracuse, I got just about the whole orchestra. Wow. Uh, and a lot of the principals. And uh, one of the principals wrote a letter to Sensa Sordino. Sordina, it's a magazine for classical musicians, mm -hmm. talking about my work in Syracuse. And I got a, a call from uh, a teacher at Juilliard uh, asking if I helped four of our students. It was a meadow audition for one position with the French horn. And uh, <laughs> I went to New York and I met with the four ladies, uh, set up programs for them, and went back and talked to each of them once a week for eight weeks before the audition. Uh, it's a very popular, very popular position. 250 people applied, had to send in recordings. Yeah. And then they accepted 59 people to play the audition. And the four ladies I, I worked with came in first, second, fourth, and fifth. All right. And the president of Juilliard wanted to talk to me and see if I could teach this in a classroom. I said, sure. <laughs> That's when I began at Juilliard. Okay. It's interesting, uh, you're, you know, with that first invitation to Syracuse that it speaks to, you know, there's this kind of surprising thing you see where, you know, you, you had this invitation and 30 or so people showed up and then nearly everybody showed up the next day. And it, it speaks, I think, to the the need amongst musicians who, you know, and perhaps the lack of understanding or training in this area um, when it comes to performing your best. You know, like um, it, it's certainly like the the hottest topic amongst the listeners of this show. And um, it's something we talk about all the time at, uh, at the university. Um so I, I I would imagine that there weren't a lot of people doing this uh, at the time. And as, as when it comes to music, I mean, I could think, you know, sports psychology is one area. But in music, was this something new, uh, you know, when you first got started in, at Juilliard? Yes. Yes. They didn't have it. Yeah. Uh, I was the first sports psychologist to switch over from sports to music. And most of my colleagues called me crazy. To, you know, <laughs> working with million dollar Formula One drivers and golfers to work with uh, not so wealthy musicians. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. But I love music, and I, I always have. Uh, I had been practicing sports psychology for ten years when I switched over. I had done just about everything I'd ever dreamed of as a sports psychologist, yeah. and also some extra thing like working with race car drivers, which was fascinating. But like I said, I've always loved music. I've always been uh, fascinated by it and i just saw this a great new adventure yeah to work with musicians the, the, the catch is with with music schools certainly juilliard they train their people very well technically professionally solfege arpeggios all yeah. of it right but they leave out the essential ingredient of, of what do you do under pressure they yeah. can all very well in a practice room that's or in a lesson even it's what do they do on stage? And that's the category of or the curriculum of performing your best under pressure. And it's not been taught. Yeah. Uh, it took me two years in New York 
of going to violin lessons, piano lessons, voice lessons, you name it, to try to understand and, and to learn the language of musicians. Right, right. I don't play any better, but I can hopefully speak the language. Yeah, yeah. And hopefully understand what they're doing. And it was after two years in New York that I finally got it. And that's when I started writing the book Performance Success. I would I I mirrored it based upon what I was doing in class that week with my 14-week Juilliard class. And I just basically wrote what I on the weekends what I taught that week at Juilliard. Okay. And that's the, the, after I understood better yeah. um, what musicians are up for, up right, right. which is performing under pressure without proper training. Yeah. And, it, you know, is this something, you know, the, the, the performance under pressure, it makes sense from a sports point of view, right? We think about these these top performing athletes and some of them who look so cool under such pressure and there there's maybe like this assumption, you know, in our minds of like, oh, they they know how to deal with that pressure or somehow it comes along in their training. And maybe maybe it's a, a misassumption that even athletes don't practice enough of this, you know, learning how to deal with the pressure. Um, but I can see how it just maybe doesn't even some people may not even see how it applies to music. And except from the musician's point of view, when we're on stage, it is, there's a, it's a completely different dynamic, you know, and that we, whether the pressure is made up in our own minds or not, it's, it's still very intense, very stressful. And so, um, you know, like I'm wondering, uh, I've always, I had a different guest on early, a couple weeks ago who we were speaking about similar things. And I've been fascinated with the kinds of like correlations between sports and sports psychology and the kinds of athleticism and, you know, the pressure situations that musicians go through. Um, did you find that uh, your your military background or some of the research you did in school um, from that point of view, did that carry over as well into, you know, helping musicians kind of work through some of these more difficult situations? Sure. My military background taught me how to deal with extreme pressure situations. Yeah, yeah. Certainly that. But I see no difference with the pressure musicians face versus athletes or, or soldiers or SWAT officers. I, I work with SWAT officers for my dissertation. It's the same. It's just how we process it, what we do with it. Yeah. The reasons why many athletes may look calm, although they're probably not calm in the, <laughs> right. in the Olympics, is because they've had sports psychologists teach them for many, many years, starting in the 60s. So the athletes are very familiar with sports psychology. Some of them use it, some of them don't, but, but they tend to make the best use of it. Uh, I worked with the Olympic Training Center in, in San Diego for two years with some of the track and field athletes. And at the Rio Games, they won 14 medals and five gold. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it it's effective after you learn how to do it and practice and use it. Yeah. Uh, most musicians and a lot of musicians are not athletes. Uh, they don't see the correlation, uh, but it's there. It's it's the same. It's pressure and how you handle it. It, it can be tougher, more tough for musicians and athletes. Uh, you take an Olympic event like the butterfly. And, and it's a gross mode of movement. Right, <laughs> it's right. One move. Yeah. And if their left pinky is out of line, it's not going to matter much. 
for a guitarist, if the left pinky is two frets off, it's yeah. huge. Yeah. <laughs> and it's tougher to control the minor movements uh, than the gross motor movements. And that's why it's easier for some athletes to channel the adrenaline. That's what they do. They, they channel it so they run faster, jump higher in the Olympics than they do in other competitions throughout the years because they know how to use that adrenaline, that energy, whereas most musicians either fight it, ignore it, deny it, or take beta blockers or alcohol to cover over it. Right. And it makes their boring a, a performance flat versus exciting. Yeah. Versus right. using that energy for power and focus, intensity, and, and extra, uh, well, just excitement in playing. Nobody wants to hear boring playing. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, you, 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 to that point, you mentioned, I think, in the introduction of your book, you know, there's a, if you want to relax, stay at home in your living room, you know, and, and I think there's a there's a very important point there that, you know, when it comes to performing, some people's uh, maybe uh, optimal setting is to be calm, but not necessarily relaxed. There's I think there's a difference there. Is that right? Oh, certainly. You want to be inner calm. Yeah. But you want your body to be energized but relaxed. The muscles physically relaxed, but you want to feel that energy. But again, it's how you interpret that energy. Is it, oh my God, not now, I have to play. Or right. yeah, bring it on, let's go. Right. And that, that interpretation is classic because you're going to feel, if it's important at all, you're going to feel the adrenaline. And you might as well learn how to use it for better playing, not just to squeak by or get sort of like you do in a practice. This be better than you do in a practice room because you're using that energy. Yeah. So let's let's talk maybe a few minutes about um, not, clearly not everything in the book, but some of the some of these areas like um, uh, you start off with this notion of stress and how we deal with stress. Uh, you have a great quote in here. You say. Um, uh, no, when the proverbial chips are down, it doesn't matter how fast you can trill, what conservatory you attended, or what chorus you can you sing in. Stress can make you or break you. And you go on to you know essentially perf- uh, define our our performance levels by three different uh, ranges, and that's the suboptimal, optimal, and um, and peak performance. So I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that and how it relates to uh, this this factor of stress. Sure, it works directly in relationship to the stress. Stress is gonna affect you physically, mentally, emotionally, technically, if you don't know how to use it. So it will impair functioning and, and cause problems. And whether it's, it's overthinking or fear, defensiveness, lack of focus, distraction, whatever it is, it's, it's not gonna be good. We'll call it suboptimal. So the main point of this book is to get closer to optimal and once in a while peak. So optimal is playing very good considering the circumstances that it's an audition or recital. There is pressure. There's going to be pressure. And so it's not going to be your, probably your absolute best, but that's the peak and you need to reserve that for special occasions. But most of the time our wins, auditions, recitals, successful recitals with juries of people playing pretty well under the pressure. Yeah. So the pressure comes from a variety of sources. Uh, number one is called the spotlight effect. Namely, when these people get up to play, 
the attention is on them. Right. People are listening. If, if their teacher's in the audience, the teachers are listening closely and the students know that. And their peers are also there listening. And so this is a spotlight effect. And, and once they're on stage, if, if they're, you know, in, in school, they're supposed to be good. <laughs> no pressure. <Right. laughs> and, and the other thing is that some of the students are perfectionistic. The perfectionists will have perfectionistic tendencies, which under pressure doesn't work. And that's, that's not the way to go about it. It's, again, playing optimal pretty well, but if a mistake happens, which it does, you, you let it go, and rather than cause another mistake. Yeah. So just those are mainly the skills in the book, performance success, relating to performing under pressure, namely that you focus past distractions, you're going at it courageously because it takes a lot of courage to, to go for it under pressure. Right. And this right. is these are the skills that are taught in the book. This is not a matter of personality. This is a matter of learned skills. Uh, and like musical skills, you learn the skills, you practice them, you apply them, you get better at it. That's how it works. It's not it's not therapy, <laughs> not personality changes, it's it's skills that have proven to work with athletes and a lot of musicians as well. Yeah. And so it's it's just like in just like practicing your music, your your instrument, this is something you have to practice and get better at. Yes, exactly. And, and um, that's, that's what happens like at the training center for two years. I went there every week, reinforcing this, teaching new skills, talking to them, talking to the coach, seeing what's working, what's not working, going to the competitions, seeing what's working in competitions. It's like anything else. It's not just a one-shot lesson, then you're fine. It's yeah, continuing to work on these skills. So the other, the, the highest level is peak, or peak functioning, peak experience, in flow, in the zone. This is the magic zone that we all would like to get to. But the only way to get there is through optimal. You can't jump from suboptimal, but it's terrible, to, oh, my God, that was amazing. <laughs> so, so it's, again, working on these skills and then working on the peak skills, which are like really getting the zone, really shifting from left brain, thinking too much to total right brain, being in flow without the mental noise, totally engaged, focused on the task, not self-centered, task-oriented on what you're doing in the moment uh, to to the exclusion of everything else. And that's yeah. the zone. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm wondering if, um, you know, you, you, you talk a lot about, right and left brain attributes in in the book and i'm wondering if this ties into that at all could you explain a little bit about what um you know what's going on with our right and left brains when we're when we're performing well the left brain is the analytical side of our brain it thinks in terms of words and numbers and a lot of judgments opinions and criticism um the right brain is is where we have images or pictures uh, sensations like fingering or vibrato and sounds, images, sounds, images, sensations, and sounds. No left brain, no judgment. So this is the territory of musicians. Left brain, accountants, math teachers, <laughs> attorneys. Yeah. Certainly not a creative part. So the left brain is analytical, the right brain is more creative. So in order to learn any music, Musical skill, technical skill, you pretty much have to learn it through the left brain of people explaining to you in terms of words. Put your hands here, do this, this is how we pick. 
and ultimately with practice and 10,000 hours, <laughs> shifting it to right brain where it's so-called automatic. It's not, it's, it's neuromuscular programming of the fingers doing it without the verbal interference of hearing it and playing it. So the whole idea of practicing is to get from left brain thinking about doing it to right brain hearing it, doing it without the thinking. And and if, if they make a mistake and go back to left brain and hear criticism or a brief instruction, it's gonna take them out of the flow. So the whole idea is to understand how to get more into right brain before you play and then trying to stay there for as long as possible. I teach a strategy called centering, which is a very sophisticated strategy of seven steps, seven different steps tied to breathing, tied to focus, tied to getting people prepared to play a musical instrument in right brain. It takes a little while to learn to get it from, it takes about a minute and a half at first in seven steps to after a couple of weeks of practice to get it down to basically less than 10 seconds. Wow. Which you can do in a green room or before you go on stage or even between pieces on stage, you can get centered. So you start at the next piece, next excerpt, centered. And this is one of the things that's offered on my, on my website it's a strategy course, it's centering training course that that's gives audio, video, and a workbook to teach people how to really center. Yeah. And this is the centering is, uh, I mean, it's, it's the thing that I think you mentioned that you started with, um, it's your dissertation, right? It was your dissertation. You were kind of, ex, you were exploring the, the techniques and, um, it's not just a, uh, some kind of made up thing. You you have applied this, and it's <laughs> you know what I mean. This is like proven. Uh, you've you've proven the the results of this, positive results of this, time and time again with the different, like you said, with the different teams and the different uh, athletes and musicians throughout the years. Um, is uh, could you could you talk a little bit about it, or uh, a little like what what kinds of things might be involved with it? Well, it, it was invented by by my mentor. He was also interested in why he didn't perform well as an athlete. He went to Japan and studied Aikido, one of the most okay. mental of all the martial arts. Got his black belt, came back to the States, got his PhD in sports psychology and combined them to go against what happens to people under stress. Namely, under stress, they tend to tighten up, their breathing changes, their eyes shift a lot, and they lose their focus butterflies in the stomach, a lot of perspiration. That's just the physical. The mental is people get slammed into their left brain to try to figure out how to get out of this problem. <laughs> right. Very high speed thinking in their left brain as opposed to focusing in the right brain. Uh, also, they, they, they shift into fear. They just tend to play defensively or get tight during the headlights besides fight flight. So this centering is seven steps to go against all of those things. So it incorporates breathing, incorporates focus, incorporates focusing your mind on your center, uh, getting prepared. And, yeah. and it takes, takes a couple of weeks to learn. Uh, I, <laughs> if I mention the seven steps, it's like, Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a one minute music lesson. It, it just doesn't work. Right. Right. 
It's like any skill. It's a skill that you learn and practice and then apply in more challenging situations. With that, I think, you know, one of the things that um, came up recently uh, with a student in a jury, and we see this with juries all the time, is a um, very talented, very talented student uh, I know is a, is a top performer, but just absolutely choked in this jury. And, um, you know, after the jury, I, 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 he, he kind of put his guitar down and I, and I said, are, are you, are you okay? <laughs> you know? And, and, uh, I said, I, I, I had to kind of just calm him down a little bit and say, it's just a jury. Don't, don't let it get to you, you know? And, um, I'm wondering like in your experience, is that, what, what is it like? Do, do you find that people are, um, musicians, get inside their heads too much or what kinds of factors are causing this you know this thing where they're they're so good at what they do but for whatever reason in in a particular environment it's just they 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 lose they lose it you know what i mean yeah it's called choking yeah well athletes have through athletes we now understand precisely the mechanism of choking and it applies equally to athletes under pressure or musicians under pressure it's the same mechanism because we're wired the same. So here's how it works. In order to learn any skill at a high level, we have to put in a lot of hours, left brain and right brain. So it's in neuromuscular programming, hardwired from our brain down to our fingertips from a substance called myelin. Myelin is what builds up through correct repetition and wraps itself around the neurons from our brain down to our fingertips and each each time we repeat something, like in practice, correctly, it builds the myelin. And the more myelin is built, it's like insulation around the wire, the, the smoother the connection. So it's instantaneous, and that's what's called muscle memory, but there's no such thing as muscle memory because muscles don't have memory. Right. They just fire and relax. It's, it's the intelligence of our neuromuscular programming. So the reason to put in all the hours in the practice room that's necessary is so under pressure you can trust that programming and not override it. However, under pressure, if people are not trained, the tendency is to, to know that this is consequential because the jury is certainly consequential and they certainly want to pass and not fail. So they go into this pressure situation not 100% prepared, certainly not mentally 100% prepared. They may be physically, technically prepared, but they know this probably have a track rec track record of not doing well and now they're recalling maybe those situations so the adrenaline is flowing so they go in there and, and their hands may be shaking they may maybe perspiring or hands wet with perspiration uh their knees shaking butterflies in their stomach and they start and it doesn't feel the same because their body is not the same They've got all this energy surging through it that they're not used to. So it's not, their vibrato is not going to sound the same. And they hear that. And they know it's not good. So at this point, instead of trusting the right brain and trusting their neuromuscular programming, what they do is they shift totally into left brain, but not just left brain, they shift into the prefrontal cortex. This is the most advanced form of human thinking that does what's called executive functioning. This is thinking really fast, like you're in a board meeting 
with your dean and other professors in there trying to figure out what to do with the budget. And it's, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so with hyperspeed processing, calculating numbers in your left brain, I can take money from this and put it over there. And really fast, it's called liquid intelligence. It's very fast cognitive processing that comes in handy at board meetings. <laughs> yeah, but board not in a jury. <laughs> justify something to your spouse. <laughs> right, right. But it, it cranks to very fast what's called beta frequency. This is very, very fast thinking, like 10 people talking at once really fast. Yeah. Again, if you need that in a board meeting, very helpful. In the middle of a jury, it's the worst place you can be. And you, you're trying to figure this out, but trying to play the music, but you're not feeling the fingers the same because it feels the same. Now you think, what if I lose this? And you go from process thinking of being in a moment, to, oh my God, what if I fail this jury? And that just cranks in more adrenaline and puts you down that road of choking till it all falls apart. You can see it vividly with athletes, famous ones. It happens like at the Masters with with Greg Norman one year, it was it was tough to watch. It was painful that one of the world's best golfers looking like a hack. But it happens happens to the best musicians and happens to the best trained athletes and musicians. It's the same mechanism. Athletes know it better, know what to do with it better. And that's that shift to right brain. Trust trust the neuromuscular programming. I did a TED talk, a TED-Ed talk, uh, you can find it on my website called How to Practice Effectively. And it's for musicians and athletes, and it's all about building in the neuromuscular programming, building in the myelin so you can trust it under pressure, which is when you need to trust it the most. How to practice, it's got like 28 million views or something. Yeah, oh, I've seen it, I've seen it. It's, I've seen it a few times and shared it a few times myself. <laughs> it's a great video, so I'll, I'll definitely post a, a link to it when I uh, put up the show. Yeah. So you have uh, you know, these different tools and strategies when it comes to um, like what you're talking about, not choking or, or you, know, you, you, you have this, this, de- this, this clear line between the athletes who, under- who can interpret um, mistakes or mess ups or things like that in a way that allows them to keep going forward versus the people who interpret them and suddenly, like you said, choke or crumble under the pressure. Um, and so you have some of these techniques laid out in the book. Um, and they're, they're, they're familiar to me because I've, there are things that I talk about with students, but I've also read a lot about them and experienced them myself, not only in performance, but in any of the kind of athletic endeavors that I do. Um, a few of them are, I'm not going to go over all of them, but a few of them are like self-confidence. Um, then there's the idea of self-talk and, um, and the mental rehearsals I thought was another really, really, uh, important one that, um, that I thought was, uh, maybe we could, we could talk about that one in particular because a lot of the times, I think I read this too, where you were saying, you were stating, um, a lot of times people who, if they're put in this exercise of mental rehearsals, will actually rehearse themselves screwing up. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. So, so how, how can mental rehearsals help us and how can we get better at them? Cool. So confidence is a very important quantity for musicians and athletes. Uh, 
generally speaking, the more confidence you have, the better. And to the point of overconfidence or arrogance, which is not good. But most musicians are not that. Yeah. But confidence comes mainly from three sources. Uh, one is preparation, uh, the technical, the 10,000 hours, the physical work, the lessons, the scales, your arpeggios. You've got to do that. If you don't do that, there's no way to fake that. <laughs> okay. Right. So if one is good teachers, good lessons, good practice to get the skills. The second has to do with self-talk because most musicians are talking to themselves most of the time and believing just about everything they're saying, even if it's not true, like I can't play that. Well, you can't play that and you're just not nailing it, but you can play that. And saying you can't play that is just convincing you that you can't, which can affect your confidence. And the third part is mental rehearsal. This is right brain, self-talk obviously left brain, but right brain is, are you able to imagine the whole piece played flawlessly? I don't use the word perfectly. Can you play through it in your head in right brain, namely hear it correctly, feel it correctly with your fingers or strumming or picking and see it, see your hands in the correct positions all at the same time, because that's what you do when you're playing. And I was amazed when I shifted from athletes to musicians to find out the musicians couldn't do it very well, but never even tried. And I could understand with some athletes with the danger involved. Um, <laughs> you don't want to make mistakes when you're imagining dives that you could really hurt yourself on. Right, yeah. The normal tendency at first with musicians I found is is they do make mistakes generally in the same places that they make it when they're actually playing. And that's why I was never a fan of, of mental rehearsal. I can remember when I was 10, I was diving at Columbia University, practicing with the college divers. And I was having trouble with this one diver, front one and a half, front one and a half in top, pretty easy dive. But I, I would come out early and do a belly flop, which was not fun. <laughs> so, so one of the divers, one of the college divers said, well, you know, just picture it in your head, seeing it. And that's all I could see is more belly flops. So I thought, this is, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to do this. So I didn't do it. And all through high school and college and, and graduate school, when they were talking about, in the sports college, you talk about mental rehearsal. I thought that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I didn't really pay that much attention. And, and then it was I was with the diving team. It was two months before the Olympic trials. And I was working with the Mission Viejo divers. Uh, and we had many Olympic champions, world champions, national champions on, on our team. Uh, 10 meter divers for two slots, two for the women, two for the men. And surely one of our, one or two of our women would make the team, which they did. But, but Pam, one day in practice, uh, she was doing a back two and a half pike, which is really a tough dive to make the rotations in pike, not tough. And she, to do it, you have to get a real aggressive start off the platform to really jump high and, and get into the pike really fast and pull it in tight for the rotation to make sure you can make two and a half rotations and go in on your head. <laughs> well, instead of jumping vigorously, just she just kind of sat back into the dive, just sat back. And the coach and I immediately cringed. We could see what this is not going to be pretty. 
and and most experienced divers would have curled up into a tuck and just a ball and just prayed for the best. She didn't. She stayed with the rotations and she kicked out at her normal spot to kick out. But instead of being three meters up, she was one meter up. And she absolutely landed flat on her back and just laid out flat, so much so that she bounced off the water. Oh. At 33, you go on 35 miles an hour, it's like a hard surface. Yeah, yeah. So we put a stretcher under her back, took it to the orthopedic surgeon, did all the test x-rays, said, I, I don't know why your back isn't broken, but it's not. Wow. Uh, you're a very lucky young lady. She said, but but can I dive at the Olympic job? <laughs> right. <laughs> like Olympic hopeful, still had stars in her eyes. And he said, maybe, but you can't practice. You got to heal. Yeah. So for two months, she and I did mental rehearsal. Laid her down on the coach's couch, and I took her through not just that dive, but all her other dives and even, even warm-up dives and stretching, the whole thing, for two months. That's all she did when all the other divers out there hitting dives and missing dives. But she was hadn't missed a dive in two months. So we go to Indianapolis a week early for the trials to get used to the pool and the lights and the platforms. And she said, can I dive? He says, no. But you can go in the training room and <laughs> do some more mental rehearsals. Day of the competition, she said, can I at least do my eight warm-up dives? He said, no, you can do the eight dives in competition. So everybody knew the story. It's a very small community of diving that the 16-year-old hadn't been on the platform in two months. And platform diving, I've done it. Platform diving is very scary. Yeah. If you do it every day, you, you come to the realization maybe it's not crazy. But if you get away from it for a few years, it just builds up. It's like, I don't know if I ever want to do that. Uh, so she hadn't done it in two months. So the competition starts. He examines her and says, hey, you can do the eight dives. So she hit her first dive. It was an easy dive, but she nailed it. And the second dive and the third dive, fourth dive, and it's like, oh my God, after five rounds, she's leading the competition. She hadn't missed a dive in her head in two months. The other girls had hit dives and missed dives. And confidence knows. It, it keeps a tally, a constant running tally. Yeah. She hit her sixth dive. She was winning by 10 points. Seventh dive. Wasn't her tough one. We saved that for last. Seventh dive, she, the mondo, there's stuff on the end of on the platforms. It's made like a, a track surface. It's mondo. And it gets wet after seven rounds of diving. And they try to dry it off. And they can't dry it off. And she didn't factor that in. She slipped. And she got a bad takeoff. And she went, she didn't land flat, but she went in an angle enough. The surgeon examiner said, you're out of the competition. I believe she would have hit that last dive. Yeah. I believe she would have been the story of the games. But but that taught me the power of mental rehearsal. When I got with musicians, I saw, I thought, you know, they, they can do no danger involved. And I saw that they didn't even try it or didn't know how to do it. Like you say, that they, they make mistakes. And that's easy to correct. You just slow it down and start slowly. And... It's again, it's a skill. It's learning how to do it, but not just by jumping into the toughest piece, by just starting with warm up. Can you hear your warm up? 
Can you hear and feel it? Mm. Can you see what you want moving correctly, your hands moving correctly? Then go to scales, then arpeggios, then with easy pieces of music until you start making mistakes. And then when you make the mistake, just like in practice, you stop, don't make it again, slow it down in a speed you can control and play it correctly in your mind and then work through those those four bars increasing in speed till you're playing it correctly in real time in your mind then you move on and keep on moving to challenging things including moving on to pieces you haven't even tried yet yeah sit down with the music in front of you maybe with the guitar but without playing just going through it in your head so you don't pick up the instrument and start stepping on it right away. <laughs> yeah, right. So you get it right in your head, then you then you start playing it. And this is this is an incredible tool, and it saves wear and tear on your body <laughs> and mind making mistakes. And I've just become a big fan of mental rehearsal. That's great. Well, I know your time is limited. Uh, there's so much more I know we could talk about, but uh, I I wanted to um, give you just a second to talk about your. Um, you know your work today uh people i am you're still working today with musicians i i gather and you have um like i said you have a number of different books the one we're talking about is performance success um but you have a website and could you talk a little bit about you know if someone wants to work with you there are different ways to work with you is that right sure. yes the website is winningonstage.com and on that i do have a centering training course which again is a self-study course that they take it home through a series of lessons, videos, audios, and a workbook. But I also have an assessment that comes with a half hour session. Uh, a lot of musicians will say, you know, I, I can't focus or I'm not sure about this. This is like an x-ray. It's like taking an x-ray and it's got five different major areas that you take online. Determination, focus, confidence, courage, resilience and really understand in these categories and there's like in confidence there's a self-talk score there's a mental rehearsal score there's a expectancy score so you see that's that's why my confidence is low there's no need to guess it takes about 12 minutes to take it they take it online they get a copy i get a copy then we have a half hour feedback session answer their questions and set up a program for them what what they can do to improve it you know, read this chapter in this book or take the centering course or read this other book. Um, these are learned skills. You, you learn it like musical skills by practicing, studying, getting the right information. And this is on my website. Great. Uh, I've got a course called Power Learning, which helps people accelerate the learning process and use things like mental rehearsal and practice sessions, understanding myelin better. Uh, that's also on my website. And if people want to work one-on-one -on -one with you, they, they can as well? Oh, that's it. But it normally starts with this half-hour session. So oh, I see. just talking about generalities, we can get right to it. And then if they want to sign up for a series of sessions, yeah, we can set up those. And that's mainly what I do. And I, I'm not working with the Olympic team right now, other than one or two athletes. Uh, but the majority of people I'm working with are musicians all over the world through Skype. Uh, Germany, Australia, Spain, France, Sweden, but it's it's the same topic. It's basically the same. Yeah. Forming under pressure. Well, I highly recommend uh, the book, and I also recommend uh, people check out your website and uh, 
reach out to you if they want to want to get uh, get better at performing under pressure. Uh, Dr. Don Green, thank you for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time. You're very welcome. Thank you, Jesse.